0: I think we're good to go. All right, well, before we get started, uh, this is Kwanele. Uh, he is staying with Maria and I and the kids for almost a year. He'll be staying, staying with us till July. It's part of an IVEP program that our uh, church out in Riverside does, uh, straight from South Africa. He is in kids' ministry at his church in South Africa, and he's kind of coming out here to kind of apprentice a little bit and pick up some ideas and also look at different cultures, which I think is a great segue into the sermon. But uh, this is Kwan he's been with us for two months. Two now. Months now. Yeah. And <laughs> in Two yeah. months a week. Oh. <laughs> he's yeah, counting us. Right? So
1: where in Africa? South Africa. South Africa. At, like, the bottom.
0: So um what's it um P- Peter Peter Right outside of Durban if you know
1: there's a real famous mountain biker from Pittsburgh. His name's Greg Menard. Have you ever heard of him? No, no. <laughs> I, thought maybe we, I thought maybe we were going to have a connection moment. Come on, Elliot. Let's put our hands on Elliot as he prepares the sermon. And I want to put my hands on you, too. And we're going to pray over you guys. Um, thanks for being here this morning. Thanks for your ministry in the church. Elliot, thank you. Lord, thank you for these brothers that are up here. And, um, yeah, would you just again speak through Elliot. May your words and um, your wisdom... And your love, your mercy, um, be manifested through Elliot um, as he shares. May we hear from your voice again. Thank you for bringing our friend Quaneteng here um, just to be with us this morning, Lord. Thank you for. Um, I, I know that he was sharing some of the, the difficulties that he had before he was able to make it over to the United States. Um, thank you for helping him overcome those, um, bringing him peace and goodness in this um, in this in this new place for him. Would you bless him? And bring a more of your spirit in the name of the Father and the Son and
0: the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Thank you. I don't know. Is this bugging anyone else? This little cable hanging out there. Everyone's looking there. huh? I should probably find a place for that. It's, okay. There you go. I need bigger pockets. All right. Down to go forward. Up to go back. That's it. Okay. Nice. This is this is Brent's. Sp- it is. Yeah. I'm not used to this guy, so I have to get used. Used to it, but uh, hey, it seriously is an honor to be able to come and uh, speak with you guys. Um, whenever Eric gives me the ring, you know, I'm always kind of looking forward to it, and uh, I always got to take it because, you know, you guys give me this opportunity to share and, and get some things off my chest. No, I'm just kidding. Um, but, you know, to, to challenge, right? To, to put ideas out there and, and to put some thoughts. So I really look forward to this, and it's an honor to be able to speak with you. As Eric uh, alluded to, you know he gave me a call and he said we're talking about cultural ills you know it seems like it's right in your wheelhouse which you know it is and the the word the idea that came to my mind was kind of this this idea of exceptionalism right uh, national exceptionalism american exceptionalism and the role that kind of the church plays in that right the the f- fact that the church is a, is kind of a cultural pillar that is a part of our kind of uh, idea of what we are as an exceptional nation. So I want to dig into that a little bit. I'm going to try to make some connections to the Israelite example and then bring it home as well. Now, as a history teacher, right, in the last couple of years we've been pushing thesis quite often, right? And I was thinking back to a couple of my last sermons and it seems like I'd get to about the halfway point And then even myself, I'd be sitting there like, whoa, we've come a long way. Got to make sure that we're connecting things. So I just wanted to throw it straight out in the beginning. Here's the gist of my my position, right? The gist of my idea that I hope to bring to you today. National exceptionalism as expressed and supported by a culture's social memory often instills prejudice in the culture toward change. As adherence to one of the pillars of America's social memory, we as Christians should be weary of the corrosive effects of social memory and do our best to seek Christ amidst the pressure of exceptionalism. Now, a key term that I've used multiple times in there, social memory. Right? I'm going to try to bring that to bear today, introduce you to that term, try to define it, uh, and make a connection between our national kind of exceptional identity and social memory and how they kind of play together off of one another. So why don't we go there next? Here's a definition of social memory. It comes straight from uh, the historian John Tosh in his book, The Pursuit of History, kind of a, a methodology book for historians about how to do good history, and he writes, tradition, nostalgia, and progress provide the basic constituents of social memory. Each answers a deep psychological need for security through seeming to promise no change, or change for the better, or an escape into a more congenial past. The real object to them is, the real objection to them is that, as a governing, governing stance, They require the past to conform with a deeply felt and often unacknowledged need. They are about belief, not inquiry. They look for a consistent window on the past, and they end up doing scant justice to anything else. History as a profession right, developed in the 19th century, and it was this this idea that we can look objectively at the past, kind of separate ourselves from the past, and try to, based on inquiry, construct what the past was really like. Right? Uh, what history was before that, and what quite often we struggle with when we think about history today, it was more of a social memory. Right? It was more of the thinkers of a group coming together, constructing kind of a tradition right, that gave the group an identity. Right? And it was very much, and I want to focus on, as Tosh says there towards the bottom, social memory is about belief. Not necessarily Asking those questions, right? Not necessarily digging deep to really find the reality, but instead finding comfort in kind of the established understanding, right? The established, often exceptional identity that a group kind of develops and carries with itself. So as we go through, I want you to keep this idea of social memory in mind and uh, how I apply it here. Oh, there's four buttons on this thing. Okay, so here's where I'd like us to dive into, if you'd grab your Bibles, and I forgot to bring my uh, books up there, I'll take those two as well, thank you. We're going to go to Deuteronomy, going old school here, the Old Testament, Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 7, starting with verse 1. When someone gets there, if you wouldn't mind giving a shout out to the page number. One twenty-six. All right, so just to give a little context here, um, you know, this is Moses, right? Uh, We we attest this to Moses here writing Deuteronomy. Uh, They are in the wilderness, right? It's the Exodus. They have not entered the promised land yet, uh, but they're kind of laying down the groundwork, right? Laying down the groundwork for... Um, what their promise is and what this land is all about. Right. So, starting with uh, verse one in chapter seven, and I'm reading out of the New Living Translation. Uh, when the Lord your God brings you into the land you are about to enter and occupy, He will clear away many nations ahead of you: the Hittites, Gergeshites, Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. These seven nations are greater and more numerous than you. When the Lord your God hands these nations over to you and you conquer them, you must completely destroy them. Make no treaties with them and show them no mercy. You must not intermarry with them. Do not let your daughters and sons marry their sons and daughters, for they will lead your children away from me to worship other gods. Then the anger of the Lord will burn against you, and he will quickly destroy you. This is what you must do. You must break down their pagan altars and shatter their sacred pillars, cut down their Asherah poles, and burn their idols. For you are a holy people who belong to the Lord your God. Of all the people on earth, the Lord your God has chosen you to be His own special treasure. The Lord did not set His heart on you and choose you because you were more numerous than other nations, for you were the smallest of all nations." Rather, it was simply that the Lord loves you, and he was keeping the oath he had sworn to your ancestors. That is why the Lord rescued you with such a strong hand from your slavery and from the oppressive hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Understand, therefore, that the Lord your God is indeed God. He is the faithful God who keeps his covenant for a thousand generations and lavishes his unfailing love on those who love him and obey his commands. But he does not hesitate to punish and destroy those who reject him. Therefore, you must obey all these commands, decrees, and regulations I am giving you today. If you listen to these regulations and faithfully obey them, the Lord your God will keep His covenant of unfailing love with you, as He promised with an oath to your ancestors. He will love you and bless you, and He will give you many children. He will give fertility to your land and your animals. When you arrive in the land He swore to give your ancestors, you will have large harvests of grain, new wine and olive oil, and great herds of cattle, sheep, and goats." You will be blessed above all the nations of the earth. None of your men or women will be childless, and all your livestock will bear young. And the Lord will protect you from all sickness. He will not let you suffer from the terrible diseases you knew in Egypt, but he will inflict them on all your enemies. So, why are we reading that, right? What is, that? So, what is the purpose of that? I'm asserting that that's kind of you know, the beginnings of the Israelite social memory. Right? They are constructing a way of understanding their place in the world. And it's it's an exceptional social memory, right? It is setting them apart. It is clearly defining their role, their purpose in the land, and there's kind of a uh you know, an ethnic component to that, or or a nationalist component to that, right? What is it that makes you special? It's because you are different, right? You are separate from these other groups, and your uniqueness, your exceptional relationship is based upon. That fact. And if you follow this and if you keep yourself separate and if you purify the land as you've been told, then you will be rewarded, right? And I think this is kind of, in essence, without all the extra breakdown, you know, we kind of accept this as fact, right? This was uh, the prevailing attitude of the Old Testament. This is the uh, idea and the narrative upon which the Israelites uh, entered into the Old Testament. And in a lot of ways, we track that story as the Old Testament story. right? Uh, It's familiar to us, in a sense, right? Is this blowing anyone away? Not not necessarily, right? Uh, Now, we've got a little historical awareness that is applied here. I got a book here by Karen Armstrong, uh, The Great Transformation, The Beginning of Our Religious Traditions. And she speaks to kind of the historical context of of what was going on at the time um, that Deuteronomy 7 is describing. Um, Many of the first Israelites were, therefore, probably not foreigners, but Canaanites. The earliest parts of the Bible suggest that Yahweh was originally a god of the southern mountains. Uh, The biblical writers were not attempting to write a scientifically accurate account that would satisfy a modern historian. They were searching for the meaning of existence. These were epic stories, national sagas, that helped the people to create a distinct identity, a social memory the Israelites developed a counter-identity and a counter-narrative. They were different from the other nations in the region because they enjoyed a unique relationship with their God, Yahweh. So, Karen Armstrong trying to apply some history to the era. I mean, I, I think the way that we've traditionally understood it is that the Israelites were a separate people, right? They came from a different region, came into a new area, and that established their kind of unique identity, their separate identity. But, uh, Many historians kind of look at it and say, well, it appears as if the people that became the Israelites actually started already within Canaanite society. And they, in essence, created this social memory, uh, this you know, uh, historical narrative, um, as a way to separate themselves and to justify establishing a separate new uh, kingdom and uh, society. I love that fourth button. All right. Now... That's not to say that this is the only thread of Israelite social memory, right? We have another thread that kind of develops as Israelite uh, society uh, grows and expands. And we see that here. One example of that is in Amos, the book of Amos, chapter 2. When you find that page, if we can get a shout out. This morning when I was going through the dry run, Amos is kind of tough to find, huh? I got lucky right now. I Opened it up, but it took me a couple minutes. 6.37. 637. So to provide just a little context, Amos here is writing in the uh, 8th century BC. Uh, This is around the time of the exile, right? We've got some strong, powerful empires on the rise, the Assyrians, the Neo-Babylonians, They're coming up. They're on the horizon. We see, you know, Amos sees what they're doing, and they're on the march. They're coming, and Amos is speaking to the Israelites here, starting with verse 4. This is what the Lord says. The people of Judah have sinned again and again, and I will not let them go unpunished. They have rejected the instruction of the Lord, refusing to obey his decrees. They have been led astray by the same lies that deceived their ancestors, so I will send down fire on Judah, and all the fortresses of Jerusalem will be destroyed. This is what the Lord says. The people of Israel have sinned again and again, and I will not let them go unpunished. They sell honorable people for silver and poor people for a pair of sandals. They trample helpless people in the dust and shove the oppressed out of the way. Both father and son sleep with the same woman, corrupting my holy name. At their religious festivals they lounge in clothing their debtors put up as security, in the house of their gods, they drink wine bought with unjust fines. So, Deuteronomy, kind of, the society hasn't even been constructed yet, right? It's at the beginning. Here's our identity. This is the identity we're going to take into this new place and create a new nation, in essence, right? Here we are, Amos, a couple hundred years later, right? That society has developed, that society has grown, and that society has created some inequity, right? A system that kind of just like the end of Deuteronomy said, "Hey, as long as you follow these rules, you'll be blessed." So, what about those that aren't blessed, right? And this is a common refrain for me in my sermons, right? But uh, Amos is kind of speaking to that. He's saying, "Hmm, maybe our social memory needs to have a place for that justice, right? A place for that inequity, right? It isn't just a social memory based on our unique, exceptional relationship to God, but maybe part of that exceptional relationship is based on how we treat." those that are, you know, the the least of these, right, amongst us, right? Kind of planting that that seed, um, or carrying it on, right, the whole prophetic temple debate, which, you know, we see later on with the Pharisees and Jesus, right? I would say you could trace that debate that maybe the the, uh, Deuteronomist is having with Amos here in the same way that the Pharisees and Jesus are kind of debating each other. To go back to uh, Karen Armstrong, see the historical application that she makes... As an agrarian state, wealth was confined to the upper classes, and the gulf between rich and poor became distressingly obvious. This systemic injustice was a a religious as well as an economic problem. It is clear that both Amos and Hosea were disturbed by the social crisis of their time. Amos undermined the Israelites' pride in their unique relationship with Yahweh. Other peoples had been liberated by Yahweh too. He had brought the Philistines from Kaftor, for example, and settled them in their promised lands. Instead of using religion to shore up their sense of self-worth, the Israelites had to learn to transcend their self-interest and rule with justice and equity. And in some ways, Amos might be kind of seeing what's going to happen in the future. What have the Assyrians been doing? What have the Babylonians been doing? They've been conquering, right? They've been destroying national traditions, right? And if the national tradition doesn't change, if we don't engage with this other thread, that kind of elevates the oppressed. I mean, what's about to happen to the Israelites, probably? They're going to become oppressed. And if they're stuck in that kind of exceptional you know, relationship with God based on ethnic or national difference, then, heck, that tree might die. Which I think if you look historically, right, a lot of the groups that end up getting conquered by those empires, do we hear a lot about them? No, right? They're in the dustbin of history. Why? Well, maybe they struggled to adapt their social memory. right? Alright, so that's the Israelite example. Now we're going to shift gears and connect it to our own application today, but before we do so, I want to introduce you to another book here, uh, The Enlightenment Bible by Jonathan Sheehan. Enlightenment Bible, Translation, Scholarship, and Culture. And I think it does a good job of really solidifying our understanding of how Christianity becomes an integral part of the pillar of our culture, right, in the Western world, right? Something that we kind of take for granted today, but, but there was a transition, right? There, there was a moment of, of solidifying that, uh, and we kind of need to understand that uh, as we move forward into my American application. Uh, Sheehan writes The union of religion and culture had another aspect, a normative and ultimately political one, rooted in the sense that culture describes not just man as he is. But also as he ought to be. Let me just give you a quick rundown on this book. Usually we think of the Enlightenment and religion as being diametrically opposed, right? The Enlightenment celebrated reason over the piousness of religion, right? What Sheehan is saying is that the Enlightenment, in treating the Bible as a source, in fact, the Enlightenment is born of. Biblical exegesis, right? Biblical translation, right? The attempt to translate and get the true essence of the Bible. We need a new translation. And those translations are going and going and going. And out of that energy springs kind of this, you know, rational enlightenment sort of uh, pursuing the truth. But in that process, the Bible, biblical translation goes from the generator of that energy to all of a sudden becoming this codified part of culture, right? Once we get, as we see here, the King James Bible, that becomes part of our identity as, a, as an Englishman or as an American. right? That, we don't need another translation. We've got it. Right? So, um, In this sense, culture offered a set of aspirations, a body of human knowledge that represented the best humanity had to offer. The Luther Bible, or for our purposes, the King James Bible, was made into a piece of culture because it offered a vision of a normative Anglo-American heritage steeped with both history and spirituality. Religious man was not only Christian man but culturally also Anglo-American man, right? Part of what begins to dominate in the 19th century, this whole idea of a, you know, a hierarchy of nations, part of what makes Americans unique and superior is their Christian heritage, right? It, that's kind of what we take into the 19th century world with us, right? And if we see that application, throw a quick picture up there, and I did the run, run through with Maria here, and I was hoping that, but she, she wasn't familiar with this picture. Is anyone in here familiar with this picture and kind of the historical connection of what's going on? Manifesticity. Ah, manifesticity, there it is, right? So, uh, there, there you go. 19th century America, you know, we've got our country. We've got up to the Mississippi River, right? Uh, But we've got this understanding that, hey, we've got a special relationship with God, right? In in essence, it is uh, God has chosen us to populate and civilize and Christianize this land from the Atlantic to the Pacific. And this painting, right, kind of shows all that. I'm assuming this is, there it is. Hey, I found it. That's, yeah, button four. Uh, So, you got right the, the technology the kind of the, the civilization aspect of what America's bringing into the west right you've got this religious aspect right I'm carrying a bible here the, the telegraph line as well we are the, the industrious nation right that is civilizing the darkness of this savage uncultivated uh, frontier right bringing the light of civilization and christianity into the darkness and you know i think In a lot of ways, this still informs, this is the roots of our own social memory, right? A social memory, and America brought liberty, civilization, and Protestant industry into the chaotic darkness of the largely uninhabited West. This is an exceptional America, right? We have an exceptional relationship with God based on our Protestant cultural heritage, and we are uniquely positioned then to bring liberty and democracy and civilization and industriousness to the world, right? I've laid down kind of a few uh, key stepping stones in that process, right? You've got uh, the Pilgrim conception of a city upon a hill when they land at Plymouth Rock. That America, this new land, is going to be a new promised land for the world. Uh, Jefferson's empire of liberty—that America will spread liberty, this democracy, this idea out to the lands of the new world. I've already introduced you to manifest destiny there. Uh, US imperialism at the end of the 19th century, right? We enter into war with the Spanish, right? The Spanish American War with this idea that very much so we are going to come in and Christianize and civilize the people of the Philippines, which I'll bring this up, right? This is actually a political cartoon from the Philippine American War, which ensued after. Uh, we defeated the Spanish, right? A two-year period of insurrection where the Filipinos were saying, hey, we thought you were the bearers of liberty, right? We thought you were coming to give us liberty, and then here we are, and sure enough, we're like, yeah, we're giving you liberty. Look, right, don't you want it? At the end of a bay- bayonet, I mean, you, right, we're here for. So uh, that's kind of that social memory, right? In essence, we are the bearers of liberty. The Cold War, fighting against totalitarianism, same sort of thing, right? That is our our exceptional identity, um, Right and not necessarily connected with race, although I've already thrown that in there. Right, but let's let's break it down. We we got some historians that are speaking into this void here. This comes from uh, the historian Eric Foner in his book Give Me Liberty. During the 1840s, which is that time period of Manifest Destiny, territorial expansion came to be seen as proof of the innate superiority of the Anglo-Saxon race. Newspapers, magazines, and scholarly works popularized the link between American freedom and the supposedly innate liberty-loving qualities of Anglo-Saxon Protestants. The conquest of much of Mexico became triumphs of civilization, progress, and liberty over the tyranny of the Catholic Church and the innate incapacity of mongrel races. We don't necessarily remember this part of our social memory much, right? But Foner is saying that, hey, in the midst of it, in the 1840s, as America is expanding west, fighting the Mexican-American War, gaining this territory, this conception of, hey, why is it? Why is it that we're able to do this? It must be something to do with our Anglo-Saxon heritage, right? That racial heritage. It must be something to do with our Protestant heritage, right? These become the pillars of our social memory upon which we understand where our power and our success comes from. And especially as we look out into the West, and what do we see? We see uncivilized Native Americans. We see a world that had been dominated by the fur trade with a number of mixed-race marriages between fur traders and uh, you know, the daughters of, of Native American chiefs. And we kind of come into that world and say, that, that's a chaotic world, right? That's not a civilized world. We need to bring civilization there. Another, uh, I keep, I love that fourth button. Uh, another historian speaks truth into this uh, this area, this comes from uh, Anne Hyde in her book, Empires, Nations, and Families. As the great stabilizing structure of the fur trade and the power held by the native people who stood at its center both began to crumble, these outside irritants became frightening harbingers of change. Central to the outcome was then the presence of an increasingly powerful state, the United States, something new on the Western landscape. This state and the demographic changes it brought with it promised order and opportunity. We are the bearers of democracy. We are the bearers of civilization, but how do we achieve that order? Through warfare, right? Through decades of Indian war, right? Uh, But instead it brought disorder and chaos. That fur trade world that had held everything together is smashed away in favor of what our conception of true exceptional living was. Okay, let's bring it to today, the 20th century. So as that social memory continues to grow, continues to to develop, right? Uh, we're in the midst of a war, the Cold War, and the Cold War provides a context through which the New Deal and the social revolutions for women's and minority rights of the 1960s and 70s could be portrayed as affronts to the narrative of white Protestant rugged individualism that Foner asserted had developed in the 19th century, and the church is in the midst of that. right? So the church then is one of those pillars of the traditional social memory. right? We are the keepers of that tradition, the keepers of that exceptional identity. So as you know, challenges to that exceptional identity develop in the 60s and 70s, the church quite often feels like it needs to defend that structure that it's a part of. Right? And Here we have some examples that um, Frances Fitzgerald provides in her book, The Evangelicals. Uh, speaking of Billy Graham here, mid-20th century, Billy Graham insisted that the nation continue to be devoted to the individualism that made America great, to the rugged individualism that Christ brought, he spoke of the Garden of Eden as a place where, quote, there were no union dues, no labor leaders, no snakes, and no disease. So, right, the New Deal, as it is kind of a, a reforming of that social memory, right? We say, okay, rugged individualism's maybe kinda got some weaknesses here, maybe we need a government that will step in to provide for the least of these right? The church, as a pillar of the traditional social memory, says, oh, got to push back against that, right? That's that's not a part of our national story. Uh, In regards to women's rights, the Equal Rights Amendment, as Schlafly depicted it, would dissolve men's obligations to support their wives and relegate children to daycare centers. In the mid-1970s, evangelical women published a spate of books arguing that women were by nature different from men and could achieve fulfillment and true femininity only by surrendering their lives to their husbands. Women's rights movement, getting going, right? A feminist movement in the 1960s, seen as an affront, right? To that traditional, rugged, you know, uh, idea of our national identity. Church, members of the church feel like they need to push back against that, right? Defend the tradition. Um, in regards to uh, civil rights for African Americans and minorities. In the 1960s, conservative pastors such as Jerry Falwell had begun to build church-run day schools. These private schools, most of them in the South, were known as, quote, segregation academies. What galvanized the Christian, and uh, this is a quote that Fitzgerald picks up from someone in Falwell's uh, church, what galvanized the Christian community was not abortion, school prayer, or the ERA, the Equal Rights Amendment, it was trying to deny Christian, school ta- tr- Christian schools tax exempt status on the basis of so called de facto segregation. So the church, at least in the South, playing this part of trying discomfort with the civil rights movement, right? That was challenging the pillars of that accepted social memory and kind of pushing back against the attempts to uh, expand, right? The, the realm of our uh, exceptional identity talking Francis Fitzgerald, the uh, Evangelicals, the struggle to shape America. And then wrapping it up here, I feel like I've already gone too long, but just to put the cherry on top. Uh, I wanted to bring it back to the beginning, right? When I defined social memory, right? Uh, And it was kind of this history based on belief, not based on inquiry, right? This kind of acceptance of tradition for tradition's sake. Also, Francis Fitzgerald touches a little bit on that, Uh, and how it kind of is a part of our uh, kind of Christian identity as as keepers of this social memory. Uh, Speaking of Jerry Falwell's church here, for Thomas Road people, education, in the broad sense of the word, was not a moral or intellectual quest that involved struggle or uncertainty. It was simply the process of learning the right answers. The idea that individuals should collect evidence and decide for themselves was out of the question. What bothered pious members of his congregation was not just that the public schools taught wrong answers. It was that they did not protect children from information that might call their beliefs into question. And again, beliefs as the center to that social memory. Right? Uh, I, as a history teacher, over the last... 10 years have been in the midst of this, right? Our department has fractured over this, right? This idea that, hey, there's right answers in history, and that's what they need to know versus, well, maybe we want to equip them to dive into the sources. Yet, that can be scary, right? When you're kind of connected to that social memory, to equip them to dive into the sources can bring into question some of what that social memory is built upon, and we see here in Jerry Falwell's church kind of a connection to that. I got a quote here. This is kind of redundant, but um, this is Richard Hofstadter. Leading historian of the 20th century, he wrote a book, um, Anti Intellectualism in the American Tradition. Don't quote me on that, but it's something to that effect. And he's kind of pointing that out. He says that, you know, there is the degree to which the church has been this pillar of our social memory, has kind of instilled this sort of distrust of uh, critical thought, right? This, This comfort in traditional beliefs. Uh, And, you know, we see this to the present day with some of the blowback against universities, against kind of some of what higher learning is doing and how it's, you know, whether it be minority studies, you know, women's lib, I mean, uh, these expanded classes for people to dive in to those sorts of things and the discomfort associated with that. So, there we go. There was another slide, too, but Maria said I should probably cut it, so I did. But, um, uh, well, I, I, anyway... Discussion time. I uh, reached in Galatians. The slide was about Galatians, too. I was going to keep going. I was going to say, okay, is there, where do we find that other branch, right, in the American social memory, right? Just as Amos provided that other branch, that other thread uh, to the Israelite social memory, does Galatians hold a place for the modern American church, right, and maybe reevaluating that social memory there? Uh, How might Galatians 3.28 contribute to our social memory? How can we have constructive conversations with others about the ramifications of our social memory? Uh, any positive examples of the church decoupling itself from the power of social memory, or any examples of the social memory uplifting the oppressed in our national tradition? So, discuss amongst yourselves, and we'll see. Hopefully, something sprouts out of a, out of the out of the craziness, right? I mean. Slow down, take a breath.